0: today, I'm going to keep it hip-hop. So this is 100% uh, all me. You know, like, if you see an any MC, it's all about them. And I'm just telling you right now, for the next 55 minutes or so, it's all about me. Okay? This is what I love and what I care about and uh, this is my story, if you will. Hip-hop, everybody has their own story in hip-hop. Um, I'm blessed to be able to share this story with so many people, uh, many of them in this room. Uh, my brother Malik Whitaker, A.K.A. DJ Series Black, is sitting back there. Um, and, um, so many friends in here. I don't want to start calling everybody's name because uh, people have known me. I got a couple college teammates in here that know the first time they saw me walk in the hall, I was rapping on campus. It's all I cared about was hip hop. That's what got me up in the morning. So what we're going to do today is kind of combine my life and professional experience. With my personal passions and interests. And so, being a history major, being someone that has worked at the highest levels of politics in our country, uh, worked at the state level, been working at the local level, organizing for um, more than 15 years in South Carolina on social justice issues, I just kind of wanted to pull all that together in something that um, I've been passionate about and I actually have been writing about. So, what you see on the screen is the first time I'm sharing some content of a book that I'm writing on the impact of hip-hop music culture uh, on politics uh, and uh, public policy in America. So um, just bear with me, hold your questions to the end, and um, hopefully we have a good dialogue because hopefully there are a lot of experts in this room who can share their own testimonies and experiences like my brother DJ Precise in, in the back of the room. Uh, so much to share, show, so much to know. So and um, some people in this room going to see themselves on the screen. So they should be ready for that as well. So first and foremost, i got to give you my disclaimer, which is this is for public and education use purposes only. Uh, visual content is to illustrate historical information only. Uh, that's my way of saying it's being hip hop. You know, I sample the same way everybody else sampled. <laughs> and it's OK with that. So I got my lawyer in the room back there. His name is Haywood Harvin. So everybody uh, anybody got in the beat, you go see him and don't see me. Now I'm just playing. Um, so the question is, does hip-hop have influence in American politics in public service or public policy? Yes or no? Yes.
1: yes. Okay,
0: great. So I don't need to go anymore. But I want to explain no, no, a little no, bit no. no, no. Uh, don't need that. So here's the context. Context is that hip-hop has some positive impacts. It also has some negative impacts, uh, national impact, international impact. Um, it impacts candidates, campaigns, voters, elections, uh, and issues. And so these are the things that I want to try to cover in the next few slides and give people some context of what we're going to talk about here, okay? So first, before I talk about that, I have to talk about myself, because again, I'm doing me. Um, I I call this uh, From Public Enemy to Public Good, because uh, that's the journey of my life. So most people know me by this photo right here, okay? This is me and then Senator Barack Obama, in Greenville, South Carolina in 2007. Um, this was a, a natural brotherly embrace. Everybody thinks that we're praying. We are actually not praying at all. Um, I dapped him up and he stepped on my toe and I said, <laughs> "Get off on my shoe. And so he was like, you got some big feet. And So we, we're having a conversation about my new big feet shoes and his old raggedy shoes that he was wearing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Y'all, y'all seen the hole in the bottom of the shoe? I was talking about his shoe. This is also a picture of me in the Oval Office with the president where um, I was explaining to him what I needed him to do to make sure that we enrolled 7 million people in coverage under the Affordable Care Act. This was me telling him that uh, he needed to call LeBron James, he needed to call Magic Johnson because we needed them to do some commercials and that we needed him to do a follow-up call with LL Cool who I had talked to the week before, about him tweeting during the VMAs and the Grammy Awards about open enrollment coming open so people can enroll in coverage. And so uh, this is just to validate a little authenticity. Um, this is me and Vice President Biden up at Harvard University last year, just reflecting on how big of a deal health care reform was and the impact that we had on lives. And uh, so I was happy to share that time with him. And this is my homeboy from Virginia Beach. A lot of y'all know who that is. That is from Pharrell Williams. Uh, we grew up in the same city, same hometown, went to high school right around the same time. His partner in the Neptunes is a Filipino guy named Chad Hugo, who was class of 92 behind me in high school. So, you know, I've known Pharrell before. Uh, he was happy. But he's uh, <laughs> very happy. Um, this is me in the State House. So um, the two years that I served as an elected member of the House of Representatives. Um, I, I took this photo in the speakers chamber just to remind everybody uh, that I would keep it real. Uh, and I also took the microphone. So this is me on the floor of the house. I don't know what I was talking about that day, but I was pointing at people obviously. Um, but but you can expect that it was something good about uh, outcomes for children and families in this state um, or small businesses. Now a lot of people see these pictures and they think, wow Anton you've done all kinds of amazing stuff and, and you know you extra special and, you know that there was something unique about you, that you were able to do all these things. Absolutely not. Um, I was just uh, blessed to be afforded tremendous opportunities and I was never deterred because I had a hip-hop spirit about me is that you're not going to tell me no about anything that I want to get done that I'm going to make it happen by any means necessary and the grind is real. So this is where it all started. Okay. This is my mom with the rollers in the hair. Um, that's my dad, Lou. Uh, God bless his soul, he passed away um, a month ago. And that's me sitting in the lap. This is like 1970-something. I don't remember exactly where it is, but we had a one-bedroom apartment in Northern Virginia, and we was just trying to get by uh, like everybody else. Some 10 years later, it was more than me, my mom, and my dad. Um, I had three brothers, that's Sharon, Jason, and Jamal. And you can look at my knees and see that we went from ashy to classy. (laughs) Um, My knee's a little rough right there. Um, I show you those pictures because um, maybe about four years after that photo, um, I was at a crossroads in my life. I had a decision to go positive or to go negative and I actually didn't go positive, I went negative. This is a photograph of a police car similar to the police car that I was in the back of um, as a teenager, as a young teenager, um, for joy riding in a stolen car. Um, and that wasn't my first time, probably my 15th or 16th time uh, joy in a stolen car. Um, I was blessed to get out of that situation. I won't give you all the details, but I was blessed to get out of that situation. And when I got out of it, my sanctuary, Everybody has a sanctuary. Some people got man caves, you know. some people got beauty salons or spas where way they go to. My sanctuary, whenever I would get into trouble, was this place. To get lost in a music store and to be swallowed up around records. And I would go in the music store and I would just listen to whatever's coming on, whatever was new. Every Tuesday was the best day of the week yeah. for me because that's when music came out. Not on Friday when you can download it, but I'm talking about every Tuesday when you go to the record store and you stare at the new music rack to see what was out. Well, literally the same day I got out of that police car and, and walked out of the police station, I went to a place called DJ's Records and Tapes in Norfolk, Virginia. And I stood in there looking through the stacks of music and I turned to the new music stack and I saw something that blew my mind. It was an album cover. Because I had just come out of a police situation, and I saw an album cover that had a picture of two black men in a jail cell. And I was like, what did they do to get locked up? I know what I did. How did they make a record from in jail? Why are they behind bars? Who are these people? And I looked at the album, and I stared at it. And at the top of it, it had two words, public enemy. On the right side of the album, as you can see, it said it takes the nations and millions to hold us back, okay? I wanted to know who was trying to hold them back and who they were the enemy of and the enemy to. That began the day that hip hop took control of my life and put me in a direction that put me that I'm in this room right now in front of all of you. I was mesmerized by the content of that album and everything in it, and I wanted to know Who taught them to rap about stuff like this, about you can be a part of the problem or you can be a part of the solution? And that the system will destroy you if you allow it to. And every day you got to be on your guard because you in the crosshairs of somebody with a gun. That's what the public enemy logo is, a b-boy in the crosshairs of a gun. Next thing I know, I was buying albums like this, Poor Righteous Teachers. I was listening to KRS1, who we gonna hear on Saturday. And when y'all see me Saturday, don't nobody question what I'm doing or what I'm saying. Because um, I'm gonna get in a moment when KRS gets here. Intelligent Hootler. Okay? Who is that? Brand Nubian. I studied my mathematics when this album came out. I studied my 120 lessons. Okay? I knew it. Who I was as a person, I had self-clarity about my role in this world and society because of this music. And this album taught me everything that I needed to know about why it's important to be a leader. And why you should be a leader that people want to follow. Now, I share this context with you about me because I want you to understand the education and the influences that hip-hop gave to me forget what you hear on the radio today, forget what you think about hip hop that our children are absorbing. but this is what I got from hip hop knowledge itself, wisdom, understanding, learning your culture freedom of expression, empowerment, integrity, equality originality, how to show respect, how to honor people work for peace, work for justice intelligence, be educated Be a leader and not a follower. Fight the power. And the last thing that I learned is to be the power. Be the power. Now, in the context of being the power, I wanted to ask the question, how does hip hop have influence in American politics and public service? And where did it all begin? Now, a lot of people think that hip hop started when? 1973, right? Some people say that. Other people say James Brown. This is where hip-hop started. The catalyst of hip-hop started in New York City, in the Bronx, and the catalyst was this man. Do y'all know who that is? His name is Robert Moses, urban planner, a.k.a. the master builder. Who is Robert Moses and why is he important to hip-hop? Robert Moses ran for governor of the state of New York in 1938, and lost. But what he did by his campaign is he endeared himself to every political leader in the state of New York, primarily in New York City. And so for the next 40 years, really 30 years, Robert Moses was in power any way that he wanted to be in power in New York City. He never got elected to office, so he was never held accountable to the public, but instead he ran almost every public benefit corporation in the state of New York. What is a public benefit corporation? It's a way politicians and policymakers create organizations that are like government agencies but don't have to be as accountable as government agencies are. Okay? Non-profit. Not even a nonprofit, it is a government entity. The main government entity that Bob Moses or Robert Moses was in charge of is city planning and every, every development project in the city of New York. And the main project was a transportation project. And he was responsible for this. The divided line of chaos, aka the Cross Bronx Expressway. In 1948, New York City, when others wanted to expand public transportation, Robert Moses had the power and the influence to say, no, we don't need public transportation. We need highways. We need to figure out how to get people from Queens to New Jersey, and people from New Jersey to Queens. And the only way we do that is by building a highway right through the Bronx. So in 1948, they started construction on the most expensive real estate project In the history of New York State, and some will say in our country, today, the cost to build a Cross Bronx Expressway will cost $350 million. Through one stretch of mile, like $40 million a mile. Okay? Now the point of this is two things. When people heard that a highway was coming through their neighborhood, anybody that could get out, got out immediately. And what was left were the people who could not get out there. The people who did not have employment, a job, or resources to go buy a house in Queens, to go buy a house in New Jersey, to go buy a house in Brooklyn. They were stuck in the Bronx. No voice voice in the process because Robert Moses didn't have to be responsive to public input. He did this under the auspices of the leadership in New York. So again, the Cross Bronx Expressway took, how many years it took? 1948 to 1972. Expenses, laborious, painful, left people angry, frustrated, loud, and everybody that that wanted to get out got out. But here's what the Bronx looked like before they got out. Picture from 1952, a mom walking her kids across the street, buses, businesses open, nice communities. Here's a picture of a high rise in the Bronx. People living in there, clotheslines. It was a full community, a very diverse community at that. Okay? This is another photo of the Bronx. Busy, engaged, community focused. All of these things is what the Bronx was before Robert Moses did what he did. Now to give you some context of the politics of New York during that time, you need to understand a few things. Number one, that there was lots of investment into developing high rise apartment buildings for people living in. You had a little space and you got to pack a lot of people in. Everybody wanted to be in New York City. If you got family members who were in New York City, they probably went to New York City between 1948 and 1972 because it was a land of opportunity. So everybody moved there. So they built these higher high rise buildings. They wanted people to move in. People were looking for jobs. Some people were getting jobs. So everybody was living in the community. But then, some things changed. Landlords started to raise the rent, and people couldn't afford the rent. So those who couldn't afford it, they moved. Those who couldn't afford to move were evicted. And when they evicted, they were trying to go somewhere else. And it just got chaos. People getting in and out of housing. So New York City says, OK, we're going to fix this. We're going to start to control the rents in a lot of these buildings so the landlords can't raise the rent. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to help people get into housing by giving them vouchers, known as Section 8 vouchers, okay? And the New York City government supported this with their own resources. Well, something happened in 1974. It's called bad management. Bad management in New York City, meaning the city almost went bankrupt, didn't have any money. So they stopped supporting the vouchers for people to have housing, and the landlords wasn't getting their money. So when the landlords wasn't getting their money, they were crazy about not having the finances that they needed. So they beat up on the politicians. The politicians said, we can't do nothing about it. We're broke somehow. So the landlords started hiring guys that they call fixers. Fixers would go to a building that people lived in and would knock on their door and either throw them out so somebody that can move in and pay the rent, or if they refuse to leave, the fixers would set the building on fire and burn it down for insurance money. So throughout the early 1970s, in 1977, Howard Cosell uh, reportedly had a phrase when he was covering a, a Yankees baseball game after Reggie Jackson hit a home run, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. Because literally, all across the Bronx at the same time, buildings were on fire. It looked like a war zone. So the Bronx went from this to this. And this, and this, yes, that's a child standing in the middle of rubble in a modern American city as dirt is smoldering behind her because a building burned down. This is what the Bronx looked like when President Jimmy Carter heard about how bad it was and didn't believe it, wanted to come see it. This is Jimmy Carter walking through the Bronx, through a neighborhood and seeing rubble and burned out buildings. This was all done by public policy. Public policy created the environment that birthed hip hop. The drug use, the fighting, the gangs. That all was started because of public policy in the Bronx. Now, where does that take us? That takes us to the consequences of urban planning policy. White flight, economic flight, business closures, housing consolidation, rent restrictions, unemployment, poverty, gang organizing, school abandonment, housing neglect, drug proliferation, squatting, because a lot of people squatted in these empty buildings. Okay? Insurance fraud, gang violence, you know, highest crime zip code in the country in 1977 for everything murders, thefts, robbery. There's some places in the Bronx the only thing that was left standing was the police station. <laughs> Savage inequalities. That book by Jonathan Kozal talks about the legacy in the 1990s of educational problems. It all began in this context. Yes, the Bronx was burning. And this image I find so fitting that in the environment of all of that negativity and all of those things that are going on, this image of three the boys playing basketball as a building burns behind them like it doesn't even matter. That's the environment that birthed hip-hop. Now I won't get into the music discussion because y'all know this. The birth of the music and culture. On the left is DJ Cool Hurt. On the right is Kevin Donovan aka Africa Bambata. Okay, Two of the key influential leaders in the creation of the music. I'm not doing a music lesson here, so if you don't know who those two folks are, you should start Googling right now. But what I can show you is a flyer of the first house party. Cool Herb was throwing a party for his sister and her friends a Back to School Jam on August 11th 1973. That is the birthday of hip-hop. If you don't know it, write it down. Take a picture. Okay? You see how much it costs to get in a party? 25 cents, 50 cents. Sold out. Okay?
1: That's
0: what you need to know. That day, very important day. This is an image of Cool Herc and the Herculoids in the park, doing what they do best is putting together a park jam. They got the fan blowing on the amp so it don't blow. They probably plugged into a street light. Okay? Afrika Bambaataa, before becoming the head of the Zulu Nation, he was a member of the Black Spades, the street gang in New York City. Left that alone and form the universe of Zulu Nation and their motto is Peace, Unity, Love, and Having Fun. That's the goal of what we try to do. The four elements of hip-hop, you should know those. Rapping or MCing, graffiti, <coughs> DJing, B-boying, aka breakdancing. Breakdancing is a commercial name, but B-boys and B girls is what they do and who they are. The fifth element, and I learned this from Grandmaster Kaz spending some time with him. Is the fifth element. There's a flexible fifth element, if you will. Sometimes it's beatboxing, but it's really about style. That's what hip-hop is all about. It's about having your own style, creating your own style. Those are the elements of hip-hop. Hip-hop is a cultural response to public policy, to New York City's public policy and political abandonment in the social safety net in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Hip-hop has an overwhelming impact on youth culture. Everybody in this room knows what kind of impact hip-hop had, has on youth culture. And this cultural response of hip-hop caused New York City and America to try to create more social policy to control or to stop hip-hop. You don't believe me? Here's a list of some things arresting young people for breakdancing in New York City. they still arresting people today who breakdance in the subway of New York City. Arresting people for dancing. Anti-graffiti laws. You know, giving you charges for doing graffiti. Criminalization of black youth and Latino youth in the school system. For what you wear, you become a criminal. Because of what you do, beating on the tables, you become a criminal. beatbox, I remember I got suspended in the 7th grade for having the longest beatbox contest in the bathroom, okay? You putting somebody out of class for making music with your mouth, and no I'm not biz, but I did. The Rockefeller drug laws, those are mandatory minimums. The drug trade, the crime and poverty in the Bronx is synonymous with hip-hop culture, and so the laws were to put people in jail for 20 years Get caught with the smallest amounts of drugs. Mandating of explicit lyrics labels on records. Now, before hip hop, there was explicit lyrics labels, but it wasn't on every record. It usually be on comedy records. So Red Fox, yeah. or if you bought an Eddie Murphy album or um Linden Bruce album, it was put on that. But it wasn't until hip hop that they passed a law that says every album with a curse word in it must have that label on it. Bill Clinton's attack on Sister soldier, stand-your-ground laws are all tied back to hip-hop. Laws against sagging, wearing sagging pants, I don't like nobody to wear sagging pants, but they pass laws for that, okay? Stop and frisk in New York City. You look like a b-boy, we're going to stop and frisk you. That's a law. And if those that don't know, there is actually a police unit who does nothing but follow rappers around every day. Busta Rhymes got pulled over like seven times in 30 days because they were trying to catch him with something. Never caught him with anything, but he got a ticket for speeding, turning with no signal. I mean, all in the 30-day period. Hip-hop police. So this is a public policy response to the elements. But let's talk about hip-hop's response to public policy and the shaping of public policy. Hip-hop activism is a term coined by Harry Allen, who was the media assassin Republican Enemy, a great guy Uh, to describe an activist movement of the post-baby boomer generation. So that's effectively 1970s beyond, or really 1965 beyond is is the baby boomer context. So some of the social justice movement uh, and the issues in hip-hop activism around immigrant rights, um, policies that impact people of color, law enforcement issues, prison reform, transportation policy, all of these things will happen at the local level. Okay? So here's some frame of hip-hop activism that actually changed public policy, nationally and internationally. So in 84, Grandmaster Flash, Run-DMC, a lot of others refused to travel internationally to South Africa and play Sun City because of apartheid. And we know it was a few years later that that whole apartheid regime came down. Nelson Mandela was free, new constitution, everything. Hip-hop was involved in that. Russell Simmons started the Hip Hop Summit Action Network in 2001 and went head on around the Rockefeller drug laws. Gave lots of attention to it, bringing artists involved in it, their family members, everybody involved in it. And it's, years later, there was some actually reform to the Rockefeller drug laws, significant reform, hip hop changing policy. 2004 Citizen Change was, um, I don't know which name he's going by now, but Puff. Uh, Danny, um, (laughs) supported a lot of local community organizing uh, with the citizen change movement. 2004, Hip Hop Voices was labor organizing. It was a project of the AFL-CIO working on changing laws in lots of communities around the country for workers that were all hip hop connected and inspired. 2007, Reverend Yearwood, Lennox Yearwood, if y'all don't know him, you should Google him too, great leader, um, led a protest and an action around uh, this Senate bill, it was a House bill, actually it passed the Senate, and you see it says troop readiness, veterans care, Katrina recovery, Iraq accountability appropriations of 2007. This was really around money for the people who were still suffering in New Orleans after Katrina. And Reverend Yearwood was a very loud personal voice in that process, along with Russell Simmons and many others, that actually had an impact in what money went back into New Orleans. Okay, And in 2009, uh, Yearwood and lots of others were involved in a campaign to close Guantanamo Bay uh, and really uh, pushing that. So that was hip-hop activism, changing policy. Now, here's hip-hop's history in politics. So when we talk about politics, uh, it's different from changing policy. Most people think voter die is the first time they heard hip-hop connected to uh, politics, but that's not true. In 1984, Jesse Jackson's campaign for president had a theme song called Jesse, that was written by Melly Mel and performed by Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five. Jesse was the first presidential candidate to have a hip hop theme song in 1984. In 1990, Rock the Vote, which is really about MTV and rock music, they went in and included hip hop as a part of that. And a few years later, they came out with Rap the Vote, which is around voter registration and voter participation. 2004, the National Hip-Hop Political Convention was formed and held its first one in Newark, New Jersey, which was trying to develop a hip-hop political agenda. Then, of course, we all know 2008, Will I Am, um, came up with the song Yes We Can for Barack Obama's presidential campaign. That was when hip-hop artists and people in in the movement, if you will, of hip-hop became less of just doing voter registration and voter participation, but actually taking sides, picking candidates, and making choices about who they wanted to be president. In 2008, we also saw lots of other endorsements. Jay-Z and Beyonce, endorsing Barack Obama. Lots of people getting involved. And of course, 2016, right now, Killer Mike is probably, if if most black folks know who Bernie Sanders is, it's not because Bernie Sanders (laughs) been doing anything for 30 years, it's because Killer Mike put him on the map in our community. (laughs) Nobody knew who Bernie Sanders was, but Killer Mike put him on the map, okay? That's real deal. So that's the context around political campaigns and elections. Let's talk a little bit about politicians, Okay, Hip-hop has not only influenced electoral politics, but they also have sought to govern public office. Now, here's three people that I want to profile for you very quickly that I think speak to the future of where hip-hop can go and what hip-hop can do. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. The first is Mayor Raz Baraka of Newark, New Jersey. He is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. He's a Grammy award-winning artist on the album of Miss Education of Lauryn Hill. He sang with her. He did poetry on the album. He was also on the Fuji's score. So all of the skits on the score of the Fuji is Raz Baraka. He's a spoken word artist. He's one of the founders of the hip hop political Dimension. And as mayor, he's taking on police brutality, economic investment in Newark, job creation, holding businesses accountable in Newark. If you want to come to Newark and start a business and open a business, 51% of the people you hire have to be from Newark. He's creating jobs right in his community. Centers of hope around future opportunities for young kids and also investing in something that he does well, the performing arts, okay? The second person, It's Jay Smith, y'all know Jay? AKA Rhymefest, okay? Rhymefest co-wrote Jesus Walks with Kanye West. He also co-wrote Glory, the song that they won an Academy Award and a Golden Globe Award for. Jay ran for Alderman in the 20th Ward in Chicago, Illinois. He came up short, but he fundamentally came from out of nowhere and changed the campaign just because of who he was in hip hop and what he was talking about, he wasn't just like some celebrities get into politics just because that's the next cool thing. But he was talking about substantive issues around education in the school systems and what the city is not doing for the black and brown youth in New York City. I expect in Chicago. In Chica- excuse me, sorry, Chicago, not New York City. Excuse me, y'all don't beat me up, but um, but but Jay, I expect him to be. Alderman one day, and one day will likely be mayor of Chicago. I believe that, okay? Then the last one, I want to bring it close to home. I want to bring it right here to South Carolina, okay? Hip-hop is making an impact in South Carolina right now in politics. And that is Mayor Terrence Colbreth, who's sitting in the back of the room back here, okay? my young mentors, and uh, he's a former council member, town council member Johnson, now the mayor of Johnson. Stage name is Night Heat, okay? Grammy-nominated engineer with OutKast, Stankonia, big boy. Actually, most people don't know he engineered Killer Mike's first mixtape, uncredited, okay? In the game, everybody does a lot of work, okay? They do a lot of work that they don't get credit for, and he didn't get no credit for that. But you ask Killer Mike, he will tell you T was a man who put his stuff together for him. He's focused on literacy for kids. He is fundamentally transforming the town of Johnson right now. Fundamentally transforming. Black, white, old, young, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. He's having an impact. This is how hip-hop is changing the game in communities. Recreation programs, economic development. So I wanted to profile some leaders, give you some framework about campaigns and elections as a public policy, and talk a little bit more about the footprint as we see it going forward. A few other things that you don't know. The Obama presidency was the first presidency to fully embrace hip hop um, at, at an epic level. Like, I've seen Common, MC Light, Queen Latifah, a bunch of other people perform in the White House, not that. outside the White House, not across the street, not at the Verizon Center but in the White House East Room, with the bass up on high and George Washington's portrait tripping on the wall. That was the most exciting time for me in all politics, is to see that, to be at the inauguration in 2008 and have Jay-Z perform a private concert for everybody that worked on the campaign for Barack Obama. A private concert. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Hip hop is fully embraced by the White House, the culture, and the music. The next one is the Affordable Care Act, something that I'm very close and passionate about. Hip hop was all over this. And when I mean all over this, I had a meeting with Kevin Lyles, former CEO of Def Jam, about uh, how we can engage every artist that ever been on Def Jam Records in helping us to enroll people in the coverage. And why is that important? Is because being an artist doesn't come with health insurance. When you get a contract for, with a record deal, they don't give you no health insurance. You gotta get it yourself. And Chuck D and I said over and over again that he believed that Obamacare could be revolutionary in not only helping artists get the coverage that they need, but making sure they can stay healthy so they can do their craft and their art at the highest level. We've lost some incredible people in hip hop because of the lack of access to health care. Jay Dillon fight dog, You know, these things are real. And so hip-hop was fully involved in helping us to get people enrolled in college. Then the last one I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to close and open it up for questions here, is the United States State Department. Yes, I said the State Department. Most of you probably didn't know that since 2005, starting in the Bush administration, that the United States government has been sending MCs, DJs, and b-boys all around the world to perform their art to promote American democracy. In Syria, in Tunisia, Libya, we've had U.S. emissaries teaching people how to rhyme, how to scratch, and how to do their art, and at the same time talk about the value of being an American and what American values are. And most people in those countries get everything they knew about America from political leaders, that America is bad and there's nothing good about it, but they got a completely different story when they got to connect with the artists who build the art. Yeah. The first political hip-hop ambassador was Tony Black. She's an MC, got skills was the first one to be hired by the State Department to go do this work. And it has continued for more than a decade. They perform it right now in Syria. Syria! That's hip hop. So as I close, this is my last slide really, is these are questions for all of you. Hip hop music and culture definitely has had an impact on American politics and public policy, but how far can it go? And how far will it go? Will we have a hip hop governor, congressman, senator, maybe even a hip hop president? Yes. Will there ever be a hip hop agenda for America? Already exists. Will there ever be a hip hop vote? You know how they talk about the women's vote or the youth vote? Will there ever be a hip hop vote? Okay. <laughs> That should be does hip-hop politics and policy end with Barack Obama? Does the connection with the White House end with Barack Obama? And what does the future of hip-hop influence look like to all of you? So with that, I want to say thank you for your time and your attention. This is just again a summary. I'm trying to concise 40 years of hip-hop music into a few slides um, and concise a whole book into a presentation. But I'm happy to have a dialogue and I thank you your time attention.